in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study and clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less. And we do it all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today we begin a new study of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. The name is confusing for us in today's world. Were the Concordias apologizing, that is, repenting over what they said in the Augsburg Confession? Who wrote this? What is the background, and was it a long time after, June 25th, 1530, or was it a short time? All of this is important for us to ask because as confessional Lutherans, we subscribe to the Augsburg, the apology of the Augsburg Confession, meaning that we believe, teach, and confess according to it. So it's probably best that we learn a little bit more, and that's what we will do today. So open up your book of Concord and open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Apology, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back the Reverend Dr. John Maxfield, Associate Professor of Religion at Concordia University in Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Maxfield, welcome back to Concord Matters. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I, I, in, in, I encourage our listeners today that we're going to dig right into it, to the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. And by the way, reader's edition is kind of fun because, well, we're assuming you can read. So uh, open it up today as we look at the Book of Concord, specifically on page 69, the editor's introduction of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. I encourage you, our listeners as well, that this is really a, a great introduction and we'll be really digging into the history because when we read the confessions, we confess the doctrine that is placed there, but also none of it happened outside of history. This is part of history, which is why it's a joy to have Dr. Maxfield in here, a theologian, but also a historian of such matters. So we're going to dig right into it this morning on page 69. As it says, editor's introduction to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Emperor Charles is an excellent man, it says at the front, at the top. He hopes to restore unity and peace. I don't know whether he will be able to do this, besieged as he is by so many, so many demonic monsters. Martin Luther, as he wrote to Nicholas Hausmann in 1530, which uh, that's an interesting way to start this. But as we begin here is the editor's introduction. Once again, this is not the confession itself, but gives us an important background. After the public reading and presentation of the Augsburg Confession on June 25th, 1530, the Lutherans waited to receive the emperor's reply, which came on August 3rd. It was read to the Lutherans as soon became known as the pontifical confutation of the Augsburg Confession. They heard the reply, but were not given the copy of it. Couched in careful diplomatic language, the emperor's message was clear, back down or else. Further meetings were called for between the Lutherans and the emperor's theologians. Two series of meetings were held the 1st, August 13th to 21st, and the 2nd, August 24th. During these meetings, Philip Melanchthon was willing to compromise the Lutheran confession. However, the Lutheran layman prevailed and remained firm. In private, Emperor Charles tried everything he could to think of to pressure 
the Lutheran princes to back down. He threatened to exile them from their territories and to seize by force all their property and possessions. Martin Luther, writing from the Colberg Castle, encouraged them to stand strong. On September 22nd, Charles officially declared the imperial meeting to be in recess. He stated that the pontifical confutation had sufficiently answered the Lutheran confession and gave the Lutherans until April 15, 1531 to concede to his demands. They refused. The Lutherans were never given a copy of the pontifical confutation, but were ordered to do the following, accept all the conditions it imposed, accept the confutation's conclusions, to make no reply to it, and not allow it to be published. Such outrageous demands were wholly unacceptable to the Lutherans. Fortunately, while the confutation was being read, professional stenographers were writing the confutation down, word for word, so that it had an accurate transcript of its contents. The Lutheran princes asked Chancellor Bruck and Philip Melanchthon to work on a reply. By September 22nd, a first draft was ready. They tried to give Charles a copy, but he refused to accept it. Then the Lutheran party left Augsburg. Melanchthon began working on a thorough revision of what was called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. The word apology in the Greek language, which Melanchthon taught at the University of Wittenberg, means defense. Not until 1573 did the Roman Church officially publish the Confutation of the Augsburg Confession. This was long after the Council of Trent, 1546 to 1563, had formally adopted Confutation's conclusions. Melanchthon worked on a thorough revision of the Augsburg Apology of the Augsburg Confession from the end of September 30th until April 15, 1531. Melanchthon was firm and confident as he replied to the Roman Church. He had taken courage from the example of the Lutheran layman at Augsburg and was bolstered by Martin Luther personally, who continued to encourage him to remain strong. Now, Dr. Maxfield, it definitely here gives us a very basic summary. How would you help us out to better understand the history, the people, the places of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession? Yes, well, I think the 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 first very helpful thing this brief introduction does is shows the the or gives a brief statement about the character of the apology, what it was uh, by this pre- brief presentation of the events of the summer of 1530. That is after the Augsburg Confession itself had been presented to the Diet of the Empire. That is the the political authorities of the empire, which at the time included many bishops as well as uh, princes, etc. Uh, and this is the first time the emperor was back in Germany for the Diet since he had, at the end of the Diet of Worms in 1521, condemned Luther and anyone who would follow Luther's teaching. Luther as a heretic, condemned by the church. He was also, uh, since 1521, condemned by the, by the empire, empire uh, speak, uh, on, um, which at the time was uh, through the uh, response of the emperor himself. And so uh, one of the first things I think we need to draw out a little bit or expand on a little bit when asking the question, what is the apology of the Augsburg Confession, is um, a, a little more understanding of what the Augsburg Confession itself was. Interestingly, when it was first being um uh, developed by Melanchthon out of various other documents, uh, 
statements of Lutheran belief in the late 1520s, including Martin Luther's confession of his faith, which he appended to the end of one of his later um, uh, treatises on the Lord's Supper controversy or the sacraments controversy. And, and, and a lot of these doctrines that had been um, developed uh, uh, in response to the controversies over the Reformation um, were, were being spelled out not only against the papal church, but also against other evangelicals or Protestants who um, were disagreeing with Luther on various points, in particular on the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the first thing we need to get at to understand the apology of the Augsburg Confession is its relationship to the Augsburg Confession itself. And the Augsburg Confession, as Melanchthon was writing it again, out of these other documents, including some by Luther, in the spring of 1530, was itself originally called an apologia. Uh, it only later becomes known as the Augsburg Confession because it was presented at the Diet of Augsburg in June 1530. But as it was being prepared by Melanchthon, and interestingly, we can trace his understanding of this because in the spring, as he was changing this document, morphing various other documents, the Torgau articles of, I think, 1529, the, the Marburg articles of 1529, various other articles were being morphed or, or developed by Melanchthon into this new apologia in Latin. It's a loan word from Greek, as the, as the um, uh, introduction here states. Uh, in Greek, it's apologia, I think. And, uh, but both mean a defense. So the Augsburg Confession itself was originally a defense of the Lutheran teaching that had been condemned in the empire, just as it had been in the papal church, ever since 1521, so nearly a decade, during which time Luther's ideas were being uh, accepted by many pastors, congregations, uh, even territorial states and governments of cities. The Reformation was really beginning in that decade in the face of the condemnation of the church and of the state or the empire. So the Augsburg itself was the Augsburg Confession itself was a defense of this doctrine and of this action in the face of imperial law of implementing Luther's reform ideas in these estates or parts of the empire. Uh, again, it, which was essentially an illegal act uh, throughout the 1520s that was being dealt with in the courts of the empire as well as um, various attempts of the imperial diets meeting this uh, meeting between 1521 and 1530 to try to bring a resolution to this religious conflict and really crisis of the empire as well as of the church. So the first thing we need to understand is that the apology is a defense of the Augsburg Confession, which was itself a defense of the Lutheran Reformation. Um, arguing that it is not heresy, but is faithful to the Catholic doctrines of the early church, its creeds, and even of the later developments until, and there's 
big disputes at the time. Uh, you know, when when did these problems begin to develop in the Catholic Church or the Latin Church of the West that Luther was responding to with his major Reformation treatises, etc.? And um, um, the Augsburg Confession basically says that nothing we have that we teach as presented in this defense uh, goes against uh, the early Catholic Church or even the, the Roman Church insofar as it's known through its most important theologians and its most important uh, decrees of councils and even popes. Um, so uh, that's the first thing. But there again, um, what kind of document is the apology? depends then on what kind of document the Augsburg Confession is. And that's that too is is a, a very important question to ask. Now our, our topic isn't on the Augsburg Confession today, but to understand the apology, we first need to say that the Augsburg Confession was in two parts that are quite distinct. The first, oh, I think it's 21 articles of the Augsburg Confession are this defense of the Lutheran or evangelical teaching. The remaining, I think it's seven articles, articles 21 uh, or 22 through 28, are then a essentially a statement of dispute. Uh, a state um, now no longer defending the doctrine of the Lutherans, but now uh, really saying where we have corrected the problems that have developed in the Latin or Catholic Church uh, during uh, the controversies of the Reformation. So when the apology is then written as a defense of the Augsburg Confession, it, it's mostly responding uh, to um, the, um, the defending of the defense, <laughs> right? Mm. Uh, reasserting the position of the Augsburg Confession that this is truly Christian doctrine and is not heresy uh, changing or um, that departs from either the teaching of scripture or the major teachings of the Catholic Church as confessed uh, since the early church. Um, so uh, the other the other important thing to note right away then in, in that first paragraph of this editor's introduction is that the apology of the Augsburg Confession was written in response to the Roman Catholic response to the Augsburg Confession, known as the Pontifical Confutation. So to understand the apology, first we need to understand the Augsburg Confession in its two distinct parts. Then we need to understand this confutation and how it responded to the Augsburg Confession. And uh, any student of the Lutheran Confessions uh, needs to read the apology in particular in view of the Augsburg Confession and this confutation, which, by the way, was was itself a compromised document. The original response of, of the theologians, the Catholic theologians at the Diet, was much sharper, uh, much a, a much sharper rejection of Lutheranism and of the Augsburg Confession. The emperor did not accept it. His goal was to try to mediate the dispute. Not really compromise, but he, he wanted to try to mediate the dispute that had been for a decade uh, dividing his empire. And uh, so he rejected the first papal response. 
and formed a committee of of theologians that were more moderate or more mediating in their approach to the question. And that's what came out with this as this pontifical computation. And when you read that document, you see that that it, it is indeed a, a much more moderate response to the Augsburg Confession. It, it first, it states where the Augsburg Confession is correct, and then where the Augsburg Confession, in their view, departs from the teachings of the Roman Catholic or Papal Church, and therefore is to be um, um, is, is understood to be refuted. And as that brief paragraph notes at the top, um, couched in careful diplomatic language, the emperor's message <laughs> was clear. Um, uh, in other words, uh, we've we've. We've gone through these various meetings, uh, various negotiations. The, the two series of meetings held later in August and September, they weren't, uh, or early and late August, they weren't the first. There had been meetings going on both before the presentation of the Augsburg Confession in June and after. And so this is a much later stage trying to negotiate uh, the, the problem and indeed the crisis. And so the Augsburg Confession is, is fully understood only in this context of its presentation and negotiation over it, and then this Catholic response, and finally the Lutheran defense of the Augsburg Confession, the apology to the Augsburg Confession uh, that we're talking about today. Would we look at this and... What was Martin Luther's role in the apology? It doesn't tell us much here. And to be honest, I haven't really heard much about Martin Luther's role. You hear about the Augsburg Confession, that that he approved it, quote unquote. He writes a little bit here from Coburg Castle. Do you have any insight on Martin Luther's role in the apology? Yeah, well, it, it has to do mostly with his role um, in corresponding with Melanchthon and the others at the Diet, while, as you noted, he was not able to be present, uh, he was there kind of in, in uh, well, he was in Coburg, which was the southernmost realm uh, of, uh, of the, his prince, uh, at that time, Duke Johann of Saxony, or the Elector of Saxony. Uh, and he was, he was there, uh, specifically not at the Diet, because he, he would not have been protected at the Diet. Um, and no longer had a, um, a what was called the guarantee of safe conduct that he had when he appeared at the Diet of Worms in 1521. Ever since after 1521, Luther was never able to leave the, um, the realms of his prince, the electors of Saxony, throughout the rest of his life. So he was at Coburg, and he's busy writing to Melanchthon and others, and his correspondence reveals how he was involved First in the developing apology, or excuse me, the developing uh, Augsburg Confession, the original Apologia. Then in these negotiations that were occurring from that time until August, when the confutation was presented. And then you have this late uh, quotation from a late letter of that summer, September 23rd, to a pastor in, in the Saxon realms, Nicholas Hausman. Who's, who he still is viewing uh, Emperor Charles uh, as, a, a moder- as, a, as an excellent man, as he says, hoping to restore unity and peace. Luther was probably not aware 
I'm sure he was not yet aware of the content of the recess of the diet dated September 22nd, mentioned briefly, which essentially summarized the decisions of the diet, including the rejection of the Augsburg Confession and the threat, essentially the threat of war uh, if the Lutherans did not um, back down and concede to the emperor's demands by the following April. So what is that about uh, six, nine months later? Mm -hmm. So Luther's correspondence is very important. And that also, in addition to these prefaces I mentioned, um, or at least started to mention that Melanchthon penned that kind of give us an idea of his thinking as he was developing the original Apologia, the Augsburg Confession. And um, when he has, uh, I, I don't remember the exact date, but it's prior to June 25th. I think it's early June. He has a copy of this Apologia that Melanchthon has crafted. It's not fully developed yet. And um, uh, Luther says, I have read your Apologia and it pleases me very much. Uh, but I have a big question. I'm now I'm paraphrasing because this is all from memory, but uh, but I know this letter pretty well. But I have a big question when you say what remains that we can negotiate. Hmm. He says what or what remains that can be conceded. Melanchthon shows in his correspondence up through June 25th, when the Augsburg Confession was presented, that he was as being as careful as possible to remove anything from this defense of Lutheran teaching that would be inflammatory. And that shows itself in the Augsburg Confession uh, in very clear ways. For example, in one of the articles uh, that was used by Melanchthon as he's crafting his defense, the Torgau articles, there is a clear statement of a basic fact of the Reformation that wherever the Lutheran Reformation was being adopted, they would abolish the mass. Now, there's a lot of baggage in that uh, that comes out in both the Augsburg Confession and the Apology and later in Luther's Schmalkald uh, articles. But uh, we need to say that, that, Lu that Melanchthon in crafting the defense and especially the second part where he's criticizing the Roman Catholic abuses uh, in the latter seven, six or seven articles of the confession, articles 22 to 28. And one of those, uh, article 24, Melanchthon says something that is, is really not true. So here's an issue. Uh, here we are interpreting the confession. We accept unconditionally its doctrine, but uh, nobody that knows uh, the origins of the confession uh, can accept uh, simply at face value what Melanchthon says at the beginning of Augs uh, Augsburg Confession, Article 24, when he says, our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the mass. And then goes on to say, the mass is retained among us with the utmost devotion, etc. The only thing we've done is add a few German hymns to the mass, essentially to the liturgy. Well, this is blatantly not true. Uh, they did a, they did abolish the mass, as the Torgau articles made clear. Uh, what that meant was they introduced Luther's uh, reform of the mass liturgy and changed the fundamental character of what the mass or what 
increasing the Lutherans are calling the Lord's Supper or the sacrament of the altar, no longer using the term mass. Um, and uh, and uh, wherever the Reformation was accepted, uh, the mass was abolished and uh, the Lord's Supper, as Luther later puts it, uh, was instituted um, in accordance with his institution. So um, to get back to, to this question, what's Luther's role? What's Melanchthon's role? While Melanchthon is busy trying to couch everything in as diplomatic language as possible and removing anything that might be inflammatory, and that was certainly the most inflammatory thing, that the Lutherans were abolishing the mass, which was the center of Catholic public worship, just as the sacrament of penance also abolished in a sense, but certainly reformed by the Lutheran reformers uh, in the 1520s, uh, changing fundamentally the character of the sacrament of penance. Um, and um, all of these things work out in different ways in first the Augsburg Confession, but especially its um, second part, where they're correcting the abuses of the Roman church, articles 22 to 30. Um, so while Melanchthon is busy trying to make everything as moderate as possible, and he says this clearly to Luther and to others, uh, Luther is writing back, you know, don't concede anything. You're, you're, you've already conceded too much. Um, he later describes the Augsburg Confession, I think it's after it, the, its presentation, as you know, I could never have written this because it, Melanchthon, my brother Philip, he, he steps so lightly and carefully. And Luther saw himself as unable to, to be so diplomatic. He, he, he had been under attack for a dozen or for 10 years or more and uh, couldn't play this role that Melanchthon was playing pretty well. But I must add, Melanchthon was also playing this very fearfully, this role. And, and Luther's role in his letters, his correspondence, it was to basically buck up, Lee. Uh, 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 don't concede too much. Don't uh, worry about everything. There's a, a letter. Uh, I haven't seen it in its original, but I, it's in an old biography of Melanchthon. And it's a quotation of a letter that he wrote. Um, so I, I, I do accept it, although... I need to look into more this source of this because what Melanchthon is in a letter of June 25th, that at the very time the Augsburg confession was being presented orally by someone else, not by Melanchthon. Melanchthon wasn't even there in the diet meeting when the Augsburg confession was presented. He was in his room. And as he describes in his letter, he's very much afraid that what he has written will be rejected and that it will lead to war, which in fact is what, as we see from this brief introduction, the emperor threatened uh, at the end of this process of negotiation in the summer of 1530. So that's Luther's role. He's trying to get uh, Melanchthon to, um, to um, stick behind what he's written and not to concede anything more. And even to recognize that the Augsburg its confession itself is not a full and complete defense of Lutheran teaching, but um, steps 
very softly and quietly on several issues. I, I've mentioned the, the issue of the mass and abolishing the mass, uh, but other major issues. The Augsburg Confession says nothing about the doctrine of purgatory. And uh, Luther writes while he's at the Coburg that summer, his refutation or no recantation of purgatory, which, by the way, I just translated and, and CPH published in one of the recent volumes of Luther's works. It's, it was never translated in the original English um, editions. I don't, I don't think it's ever been translated into English before. And uh, that was Luther's kind of first supplement to the Augsburg Confession um, to, to firm up the Lutherans in their uh, convictions regarding some issues that the Augsburg Confession um, stepped too quietly and softly on. And later, Luther's small called articles were his much more expansive um, statement that needs to be understood as his reply, not only to the papal church, but also to the attempts of Melanchthon and the Lutherans generally to try to uh, negotiate their way through this crisis of division politically in the empire, just as it was a division within the church as the bishops had almost wholly in Germany rejected the Lutheran Reformation. We need to take our break. We are studying the introduction to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are studying the history and background of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession with Reverend Dr. John Maxfield of Concordia University in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Now, Dr. Maxfield, we have covered quite a bit of ground, actually, as we look at the background of everything that leads up to the Apology and also looking back to the Augsburg Confession. So this is why I encourage you, our listeners, to, if you have a question about, boy, how, you know, what was this like in the Augsburg Confession? We just went through the whole thing, the Augsburg Confession, having a great uh, uh, beginning as we looked at the introduction, even to the preface of the Book of Concord with Dr. Maxfeld. So I encourage you to continue to look back because there is riches absolutely everywhere in every article we've read. And Dr. Maxfield is definitely leading us in a direction to understand that when you read this, it's never done in a vacuum. It's never done without history on its side. But the confessions explicitly are trying so much to make sure that the people have a clear conscience in Christ. So, Dr. Maxfield, what I'll do is I'll read the rest of the introduction and we can break down even more of the figures that come into play as we look and also what it means for us today. So we'll dig into all that. We're on page 70 of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, Concordia the Lutheran Confessions on page 70. The Apology of the Augsburg Confession is the longest and most detailed confession in the Book of Concord. 
It carefully works through the Roman response to the Augsburg Confession, refuting errors and setting forth the truth. The driving force in the apology is the repeated insistence that the Bible's most important and comforting teaching is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Again and again, Melanchthon returns to this teaching. The Apology of the Augsburg Confession was first released as Melanchthon's personal opinion, since it was not formally adopted by the Lutheran princes in Augsburg. It soon became popular throughout Lutheran Germany. Justin Jonas, Justice Jonas, colleague and friend of both Luther and Melanchthon, prepared the German translation of the Apology. In 1531, the Small Caldic uh, League, an organization of German territories and cities, were formed. A requirement of membership was accepted of both the Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. In 1533, in a letter to Christians in Leipzig, Luther urged them to adhere to our Augsburg Confession and Apology. In 1577, the Apology was included in the formula of Concord's list of doctrinal statements. The translation is from the 1584 Latin edition of the Book of Concord, which was the base text for the Apology in the Concordia Triglata. See the user's guide on page uh, 27 for details about the use of brackets and symbols, etc., etc. Now, Dr. Maxfield, as we look at this, there is there's more people involved. There's a kind of <laughs> there's quite a bit in the background and what flows from this. Where do you want to start? Okay, so um, that first paragraph you read there on on page 70, first full paragraph helps us to expand on this question I introduced mostly by talking about the Augsburg Confession itself. That is, what does the historical context and uh, the 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 uh, development of the of this writing tell us about its character? And uh, here, again, the apology is very different than many of the other confessions in our Book of Concord, one of the, which is that it's the longest and most detailed. So immediately we get while a, a difference. While the Augsburg Confession was to be a fairly brief uh, presentation or defense of Lutheran teaching according to the Reformation uh, as it's being implemented in the 1520s, but then ends with seven articles, 22 through 28, of, um, of uh, basically this is where we've uh, where we've corrected Roman Catholic abuses in our churches. Uh, that helps us to understand the Augsburg Confession, uh, this, this dual character. Well, the, the very length of the apology helps us to understand something important about this confession. It uh, is ex- intended to be not just a moderating presentation of Lutheran doctrine, but a thoroughgoing defense Melanchthon is still Melanchthon. He's still using very careful diplomatic uh, language. He's appealing a lot to the church fathers and even to the medieval Catholic theologians and especially the the, uh, authoritative statements of councils of the church. He's not, uh, he's He's engaging in a, in a much fuller defense of Lutheran doctrine than the Augsburg Confession itself had done. And he's doing so in a way that, that should have, have been attractive to his opponents, not only the theologians, but certainly 
to Charles the the fifth and the other uh, civil leaders. Uh, again, they they understood that after nine years since Luther's condemnation at fifteen twenty one, that there was no more simple condemnation of the Lutheran Reformation as heresy. They they needed to deal with the very substantial um, a defense of Luther's doctrine that had been occurring throughout this period. And the, uh, the apology kind of brings many of those arguments uh, to bear in a, in a very expansive way. Um, so refuting errors, setting forth the truth, the longest article in the apology is its uh, defense of the article on justification, which was the central article of the Augsburg Confession, its first 21 articles anyway, um, uh, and is the, um, well, it's, it's, it's described here as the most important and comforting teaching of justification by grace uh, through faith. And um, in the Augsburg Confession, it's just very brief. Uh, the apology expands on that, which, and 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 really, it it, it loses the character of, uh, in a way of a creed or simple statement of Lutheran belief, just as um, the Augsburg Confession was. It kind of combines, in other words, the first the 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 two parts of the Augsburg Confession, defending Lutheran doctrine, but also criticizing Roman abuses, in its very expansive treatment. First of all, on but the doctrine of justification, Article Four. So, what what is a, a brief paragraph in the Augsburg Confession? Because I haven't counted the paragraphs or the pages, but it's it's a very long statement defending this doctrine of justification, which was the very heart of the Lutheran Reformation. As we look at this, Doctor Maxfield, as you mentioned this, this is where often we will talk about justification by by faith. Uh, justification as the the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Um, I, I want to dig into this right now. Is as he speaks about that so thoroughly in this, it is important for us today as well. What was he? I mean, what were some of the things that he was refighting or reconfessing really boldly that he had to write it? I want to say that long <laughs> to defend yeah. during that time period. Do you have insights? Yeah, and and even in a way, it's even longer because Article Four on justification then has to be expanded in later articles on repentance, or the very next one on love and fulfilling the law. That that actually is a uh, Article Five. In other words, is more of an expansion of Article Four on justification. Why, in relation to your question, because the central con uh, answer. Two of the Catholic theologians and the papal magisterium to Luther's Reformation was that we are justified or become righteous before God, not simply through faith alone in Christ. That is by receiving the promises of God in baptism and believing that promise of forgiveness, life and salvation given in baptism to every Christian. Uh, Luther said that's, that's salvation. If you have and retain this faith in Christ, you are saved and you will stand before God on Judgment Day. Uh, the kind of final salvation is that stance before God as righteous. Described already in Psalm 1, uh, uh, the, the introduction to the prayer book of ancient Israel and of the church. Psalm 1 talks about um, 
the righteous uh, versus the sinner uh, or the wicked and uh, says that, the, you know, the, the righteous one will stand in the judgment, but not the wicked. Well, Luther said those who are righteous through faith will stand in the judgment or justified. It's his expansion, essentially, of, of Paul's theology as expressed most fully and clearly in the uh, first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Um, and uh, the Roman Catholic response to that was, was always and consistently, still to this day, faith is the beginning of salvation, but it's not enough. Faith in Christ's promise uh, or receiving the treasury of Christ's merits, as they as they spoke about in the Roman Catholic theology of penance and even indulgences, that's initially received through faith and in baptism. But to continue in this righteousness, one has to grow in this righteousness. One has to be saved by God's grace in a different way than by grace alone. It's God's grace that enables you, the, the believer, to obey his law, uh, which is summarized by the one word love, and thus to merit righteousness or to merit salvation through uh, uh, the righteousness that God gives, but that God grows, as it were, in the Christian through love. And so the, the Roman Catholic response to the central conviction of Luther was salvation is not by faith, by grace through faith alone. Salvation is by grace through faith and love. And love is expressed through good works. And what were those good works? Roman Catholics did not and do not believe that Christians are saved because they are morally perfectible and perfected. They are saved because they participate in the good works which mediate salvation, chiefly attendance at mass, chiefly going through the sacrament of penance and not only confessing your sins to a priest, but truly being contrite or sorry for your sins and truly making up, as it were, for those sins through the satisfaction that your priest tells you you should do to, to show that you mean it when you confess your sins and receive the priest's absolution. Again, uh, the Lutherans did retain a kind of confession and absolution. The Augsburg Confession makes this clear, so did the Apology. But they totally revolutionized the understanding of this sacrament of penance. First of all, by making it not a requirement, but um, simply a, a, a good means of pastoral care to confess your sins to your pastor or priest. And secondly, by saying that confession, as Luther says in the small catechism, has two parts. First, that I confess my sins. Second, that I receive absolution. That is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Well, it, throughout the Middle Ages and still to this day, the sacrament of penance has three parts or even four if you're considering the priest's work of absolution. Penance, as I mentioned briefly, is confessing your sin to your priest, being truly contrite, receiving the absolution, that's the third, that's the third part if you're counting the priest's work, and then fourth, uh, again, third, if you're only focusing on the work of the penitent, uh, rendering satisfaction or showing you mean business when dealing with your sins. 
Uh, so uh, uh, just briefly, uh, Article 4 expands very uh, significantly on how faith in Christ justifies, not partially, but fully, not, not only the beginning of justification, but its completion. Uh, then goes on, Scripture affirms this teaching, the church fathers affirm this teaching, uh, the adversaries re reject this teaching, uh, getting it to what, how the confutation responded to the article, brief article on justification in the Augsburg Confession. But then Article 5 in the Apology really continues this treatment of justification by responding to what love is. It's called love and fulfilling the law and goes on to give a Lutheran doctrine of good works in response to the Catholic doctrine of good works, which was summarized essentially in that we do merit our salvation. We participate in earning our salvation through love, through doing those good works that God has established, not just obedience of his commands, but especially doing those good works that God has mediating is mediating through his church, the sacrament of penance, indulgences, uh, going on pilgrimages to shrines that hold the sacred relics of, uh, of holy Christians of the past. All of these were the lifeblood of the spirituality or piety of the medieval Catholic church, which Luther turned to focus all uh, could focus on Christ, not faith in my good works and, and my participation in these sacraments and acts of piety, but faith in Christ is what constitutes my righteousness before God. As you look at the, the last few paragraphs, it gets into some more of the history. And it speaks about, uh, you know, Justice Jonas speaks about the small Conic League. We have about 10 minutes left in our time, Dr. Maxfield. Tell us more about these historical figures and groups. Yes, okay. And I'm kind of well prepared to do this. I just finished last uh, July uh, the chapter in my forthcoming book that dealt with the small Caldic League and the development of the Lutheran Reformation in the wake of the Diet of Augsburg and its con and its condemnation of the Lutherans by its rejection of the Augsburg Confession, and then eventually also this refusing to accept this apology. So, in response to the emperor's threat that by if you haven't recanted, have, haven't um, come to an agreement with us, conceded to the demands of the Diet as well as the emperor by April fifteenth, fifteen thirty one. If you haven't done this, essentially he was threatening war. You know, I mean, the emperor just he he's, he can't just remove these princes from power and uh, give their uh, property uh, and possessions to someone else, threatening them. Ex he, he threatened them exile. He could only do that by war. And so from 1531 for the next 20 years, there was the threat of war hovering over the Lutherans that had stood by the Augsburg Confession. And the small called League uh, was is so named because it was an alliance or league of Protestant or evangelical princes, but not just princes, also cities, uh, estates, we call them, members of the Diet that were accepting Luther's doctrine. And they formed an alliance just with 
well, mostly anyway, just with strict Lutherans. There had been attempts before the Diet of Augsburg to form a broader alliance, which would include the Zwinglians, what Luther and others called the Sacramentarians in the South. And that was a political as well as a, a religious or confessional issue. And it failed. They, they couldn't, the Marburg Colloquy of 1529 was the last attempt by one of the most politically active Lutheran princes to try to breach an agreement between Luther and Zwingli, another mostly in Switzerland, sacramentarians. Well, that failed. But when this renewed threat of war was hovering over them, they tried again and they succeeded at Schmalkald. And that's why it's called the Schmalkaldic or Schmalkald League um, uh, to form this alliance. Actually, there's there's a false statement in this introduction. There, there was not a requirement of, for membership in the League originally that every member both uh, accept the Augsburg Confession and the Apology. Uh, there was kind of a, a gentleman's agreement to accept anybody that wasn't actively against the Augsburg Confession, especially regarding the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but the all-important city and most important uh, powerful city at the time, the city of Strasbourg, for example, had not uh, agreed in a firm way with Luther yet and with the Lutherans, and yet was a founding member and probably the most important urban uh, body member of the Schmalkald League. And they... they um, were members from the beginning and and uh, didn't formally accept the Augsburg Confession until 1536. And even then, it wasn't really, really accepting the Augsburg Confession, but the um, kind of mediating confession, we call it the Wittenberg Concord, that was authored by Strasbourg's most important pastor and theologian, Martin Bootser, but agreed to by Luther and the other Wittenbergers in 1536. It was originally called the Formula of Concord, and it was originally meant to be to broach, to broach the question of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it was successful insofar as Luther agreed to it. Um, and um, that's at the back of that dispute we talked about last time on the um, the, the Augsburg Confession in its unaltered form and the later altered Augsburg Confession. Remember, we talked about that in the preface, how the preface repudiates the altered Augsburg Confession and goes back to the unaltered one. Uh, but to, to get to our real question, what we need to see is that in the 1530s and 40s, the Lutherans had developed a sufficient enough agreement also on the Lord's Supper to make this alliance of Protestants. It didn't include the Zwinglians. Zwingli died and was killed in battle, actually, over the religious question in 1531. But there were still many Zwinglians around uh, in, the, um, in the South. But in the important German cities in the South, which had been sympathetic to the Zwinglians and were branded as sacramentarians by Luther and others, uh, many of those joined the... Um, Small called league, and uh, even without this formal recognition of the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, uh, kind of, again, kind of on a basis of well, we'll agree to just be a little more simple in our confession of the um, Lord's Supper. Um, so, uh, 
in the end, that's really what's important uh, for understanding the apology is that the Augsburg Confession was never alone. It was always connected with the apology to the Augsburg Confession in the wake of 1530 and 1531. Uh, again, precisely because it was more expansive and less mediating than the Augsburg Confession was itself in the critical issues of dispute with Rome. And Dr. Maxfield, as we look at the about four minutes left in our time, it is it is something where it was clearly, like you said, it was together with the Augsburg Confession. So you see it very quickly happening. 1530, 1531, boom, it is all out there. Um, and so there's a lot to cover. So what would you encourage our listeners uh, to really look for as we go through the apology and why it's important for us even today as we confess our faith um, in our current culture? Okay, well, I, I would focus especially then on seeing how the apology answers the critique of the computation, uh, which again was the rejection uh, or refutation, as the emperor put it, of the Augsburg Confession. And so again, uh, looking at how the apology makes this answer. And uh, something we talked about briefly earlier demonstrates itself very quickly, that um, Melanchthon is concerned to respond to this computation. He makes that statement in the very per first paragraph of the apology. After our prince's confession was read publicly, certain theologians and monks prepared a confutation. His imperial majesty had it read in the assembly. He demanded that the princes agree with it. Now he's going to give their answer or an answer on their behalf to that demand. And so again, as you go through the apology, seeing how they didn't just refer to scripture, uh, but to the early church and the, and the fathers of the church, how there was a broad support in the earliest and even in, in later formulations of Christian doctrine for what was being presented in the Lutheran Reformation, it could not simply be rejected as heresy. And um, uh, Melanchthon has been credited for being one of the, uh, as a humanist scholar, for being one of the um, originators in, in the Lutheran form of what we still call patristics, that is the study of the early church fathers. Uh, that becomes more and more important in the later developments of Lutheran doctrine, comes to its culmination in Johann Gerhardt in the late 16th, early 17th century, for example. But um, yeah, uh, without getting too bogged down in the details, especially for lay people, uh, just seeing how Melanchthon goes about defending the Lutheran Reformation and its teachings in the wake of this criticism from the Catholic Church and also from the emperor. Well, with about a minute left, uh, other encouragements or uh, last statements you want to make about the apology as we dig in? Yeah, I'll, I'll make my last statement by appealing to uh, a little bit of caution in especially this article. It's 24 in the apology as well as it was in the Augsburg Confession. So in that second part of the confession, dealing with the abuses of the Catholics at the time, the article on the Mass. As I mentioned, there are some interpretive issues with the article on the Mass in the Augsburg Confession, and they are both 
uh, more fully amplified, uh, but in some ways uh, a, a casual reader can miss uh, the way uh, uh, Melanchthon clarifies his earlier statement as well as expanding upon it. Um, uh, uh, and so, again, he, he says at the outset of Article 24, at the outset, we must again make this preliminary statement. We do not abolish the mass, but religiously keep and defend it. Masses are celebrated among us every Lord's Day and all the other festivals. Yet both here in a very expansive way and in the Augsburg Confession, in fact, Melanchthon goes on to say, to show how the Lutheran uh, Reformation treated the mass as a big problem in Roman Catholic piety and theology and corrected. So uh, we might say, while they didn't abolish the mass, they reformed the mass. And uh, um, the degree to which the language of this uh, needs to be understood and interpreted carefully is shown by contrasting that first paragraph and following in the Apology with Luther's statement on the Mass in the Small Called Articles. Uh, and this would be uh, six years later um, or seven years later. Uh, it's on page 264, and I'll, I'll just note the first sentence. Luther says, the Mass in the papacy has to be the greatest and most horrible abomination since it directly and powerfully conflicts with this chief article, that is the article of justification. So, I, um, yeah, a, a reader of the confessions, pastors and theologians, as well as lay people being instructed in these teachings, needs to be very uh, aware that these kinds of statements, which in some ways are contradictory, need to be parsed out in the light of the full historical facts or the historical remembrance, the remembrance of those historical facts that have come down to us through the study of history. Uh, otherwise, we can really misconstrue what the Lutheran Re Reformation was and, in fact, how we practice the Lord's Supper or the sacrament of the altar, what some pastors are increasingly referring to as the Mass today. Well, we're going to have to end our time there. Looking forward to the Augsburg, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. So the Reverend Dr. John Maxfield, Associate Professor of Religion at Concordia University in Edmonton, Alberta. Thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters and keep up the good work in Canada. Thank you very much, uh, Brady. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.